Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, college professor, PhD student, and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a four. It's the story of a UCLA student who was brutally attacked by another student with a knife in a chemistry lab, seemingly unprovoked and completely out of nowhere. However, I have only rated it a four because, fortunately, miraculously, the victim of this attack survived. This episode is titled Unprovoked Attack. So without further ado, let's get started. On October 8, 2009, at around 12.20 in the afternoon, a 20-year-old pre-med student, Catherine Rawson, was in Young Hall on UCLA's campus setting up for a chemistry lab. According to court documents, Catherine, a junior at UCLA, was kneeling down, placing items in her lab drawer when suddenly another student, 20-year-old Damon Thompson, attacked her from behind. He stabbed her five times and slashed her neck with a kitchen knife. The attack caused serious injuries, of course, and classmates watched helplessly in awe and disbelief of what they just witnessed. It happened so fast, and one student told the Los Angeles Times that he noticed Thompson approach Catherine with no warning, and it appeared as if he was punching her repeatedly. But then the student realized it was much more serious when he saw Catherine slumped over, covered in blood. Catherine was immediately tended to by fellow classmates and teaching assistants in the building, and she was rushed to Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center in critical condition where she underwent surgery. Meanwhile, according to the Daily Bruin, UCLA's campus newspaper, Thompson turned himself in to authorities at the front desk on the third floor of Young Hall. The stabbing had occurred on the sixth floor where those chemistry labs were, and reports say Thompson was taken into custody just minutes after the attack. Catherine, thankfully, steadily improved each day and ultimately survived this seemingly random, unprovoked encounter. However, as the story of why this happened unfolded in the days and months following the brutal attack, the picture becomes much clearer. And guys, let me just say that mental health is a seriously freaking big deal. It is a real thing, and we must encourage others to seek help or see a professional when they experience symptoms of mental illness because just like you would go see a regular doctor for physical ailments, Mental ailments need attention, too. 
okay, <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox about mental health, but I think you guys get the idea. Mental health is incredibly important, and this story is proof of why. So let me tell you a little more about Damon Thompson. First, I want to say that no, he is not the victim, and I won't try to make him out to be. Because no matter how much mental anguish or mental illness one is dealing with, it is never an excuse to take another person's life or even attempt to take their life like this guy did with Catherine. But I will tell you the facts of the situation leading up to the attack. Damon D. Thompson, a Belize native, was a senior at UCLA at the time of the stabbing. However, at least 10 months prior to the incident in fall 2008, Thompson began showing signs of mental health concerns. According to a 2009 article in the LA Times, Thompson emailed his Western civilization professor, Stephen Frank, and told him that his classmates had been disruptive and made offensive comments to him while he was taking a written exam in class. He went on to tell the professor in that email, quote, I believe I heard you, Professor Frank, say that I was troubled and crazy, among other things. My outrage at this situation, coupled with the pressure of the very weighted examination, dulled my concentration and detracted from my performance, end quote. I think he meant to say distracted, but literally like the word says detracted, <laughs> but I think he meant distracted. According to the LA Times, Frank denied Thompson's claims and reported to UCLA administrators that he thought the emails were signs that Thompson needed help. Frank, though, wasn't the only professor or person, for that matter, concerned about Thompson's mental well-being. According to the LA Times, Thompson transferred to UCLA his junior year in the fall of 2008 and court records say he started exhibiting odd and concerning behavior from basically the moment he got to campus. Documentation says Thompson began experiencing auditory hallucinations and paranoid delusions, and that email to Professor Frank is just one example. According to court records, Thompson, quote, informed multiple administrators, professors, teaching assistants, and dorm personnel that other students in his classroom and dormitory were making offensive remarks to him and trying to disrupt his work, end quote. At some point, Thompson also sent a three-page letter to the dean of students claiming that a female student had repeatedly made unwelcomed verbal sexual advances toward him. In that same three-page letter, he alleged that other students had spread rumors about him and made some sort of sexual accusations about him, whatever that means. But he also said that others frequently disrupted his sleep in his residence hall and called him stupid and eavesdropped on his phone calls. However, it's most important to point out here that in that letter, Thompson basically threatened UCLA and wrote that if the university failed to do something about all these alleged incidences, then the matter would likely, quote, escalate into a more serious situation end quote, and he would, quote, end up acting in a manner that will incur undesirable consequences, end quote. Furthermore, in January of 2009, a teaching assistant told her supervisors that she witnessed Thompson frequently talking to himself, amongst other odd behavior, including 
Thompson claiming that students were distracting him and making offensive comments to him during class. The teaching assistant and her supervising professor met with Thompson and urged him to go to Counseling and Psychological Services, or CAPS for short, which I will refer to for the rest of this podcast. Eventually, word about Thompson went up the chain of command and the assistant dean of students met with him and urged him to seek treatment through CAPS. The assistant dean also informed the student safety team, which is called the consultation and response team, about Thompson and his behavior. According to court documentation, the response team basically advises campus students, faculty, and staff who have concerns about the well-being of other students. Basically, they just advise people how to handle it and how to respond depending on the situation. This is actually a pretty common team of professionals to have at colleges and universities. I know the university where I am employed has a team like this, and they are usually comprised of different people on campus who work with students on a daily basis. So counselors, psychologists, possibly professors and deans, and just really other leadership personnel on campus. But whoever is on the team or a committee or whatever it is, they're usually trained specifically to handle stuff like this. As professors, then, if we are concerned about a student's well-being in any way, particularly their mental health, we report to the response team who is then supposed to take the necessary steps in ensuring the student's safety or that the students receive the support and help they need. So I just want to point out here that at this point in the story, UCLA administration was very aware that Thompson was suffering from mental health issues. Then, in February of 2009, Thompson claimed he heard other students in his dorm plotting to shoot him, but there was absolutely zero evidence of anything like that going on. With this incident in particular, Thompson told his resident director that there were, quote, voices coming through the walls calling him an idiot, end quote. He said he heard clicking noises coming from above that sounded like a gun and that they were planning to shoot him. At this point, Thompson also told his resident director that he called his father, who advised Thompson to go ahead and, quote, hurt the other residents, end quote. However, Thompson told his resident director that while he did think about actually hurting them, he ultimately decided not to. As a result, Thompson was taken to a hospital for a psychological evaluation. There, he was diagnosed with possible schizophrenia and major depressive disorder. According to court documentation, Thompson agreed to take a low-dose psychotropic medication and began receiving outpatient mental health treatment through UCLA. But wait, (laughs) there's more. Because if that would have solved the problem, I wouldn't be telling you this story. After this, from February 2009 on, the response team at UCLA began discussing Thompson and his concerning behavior at the team's weekly meetings. So, like, literally, he was on their radar. And that's an important aspect of this story. Because even though they knew about his issues, he was still able to ultimately walk into a classroom and physically assault somebody. When Thompson returned to campus after alleging about the shooting, campus housing ended up moving him to a single room and they actually started exploring possibilities of moving him to a different residence hall. 
However, I couldn't find any documentation that said that they actually moved him. Then, in March 2009, Thompson told his on-campus psychologist, Nicole Green, that despite having ongoing hallucinations and paranoid thoughts, he threw away his medication and was no longer taking it. Green did urge him to see a psychiatrist on campus. I guess psychiatrists can prescribe medication, but psychologists cannot. However, court records say that Thompson refused to take any medication until he could determine whether or not the voices in his head were real. Let me rephrase that. He refused to get help with what he needed help with until he got well on his own. But that was never going to happen because he wasn't taking anything to help his mental illness. It was just going to progressively get worse, or at the very least, it would not get better unless he took the medication. You guys, that is basically the same thing as saying, oh, I have an infection in my arm, but I refuse to take antibiotics until my arm falls off because, you know, I wanted to make sure I had an untreated infection. I just can't stress how important it is to actively seek treatment for mental illness if symptoms arise. I promise it can and will help if a person allows it to. Okay, so let's get back to the episode. Later in March of 2009, Thompson admitted to CAPS, remember, that's the Counseling and Psychology Services at UCLA. So he admitted to a CAPS psychiatrist that he thought about harming others, but he couldn't attribute the different voices in his head to specific individuals. So basically, he didn't know exactly who to hurt. This psychiatrist strongly urged Thompson to seek inpatient treatment and check himself into a hospital, but Thompson continued to refuse. Though he sought outpatient treatment through CAPS for a few weeks, Thompson voluntarily withdrew from all treatment in April of 2009. Eventually, Thompson's untreated paranoia and mental illness got so bad that it got him barred from campus housing. In June 2009, Thompson knocked on his neighbor's door and told him he was making too much noise. Like, I guess he was being too loud, and Thompson pushed him. The neighbor had no idea what he was talking about, though, and denied making any kind of noise. So Thompson got mad, pushed the neighbor again, and told him it was his, quote, last warning, end quote. As a result, Thompson was banned from campus housing, forced to move out, and was ordered to return to CAPS treatment when the fall 2009 semester started. Regardless of not living on campus anymore, though, students and professors continued to worry about Thompson in the classroom. Just two days before the incident, on October 6, 2009, the Chemistry Lab Teaching Assistant, or TA, side note, it's super common for TAs to teach science labs instead of the actual professors of the class. Anyway, the teaching assistant wrote an email to his supervising professor saying that another incident happened with Thompson that day and the TA was worried it was becoming a regular issue, but he was skeptical. Thompson accused others in the class of calling him stupid and he frequently mentioned Catherine Rawson's name. But when the TA would like observe and actually try to look for this happening, he saw no signs of it at all. So he was becoming increasingly concerned about Thompson and his mental health. Y'all, 
This is how much he was on their radar and they still didn't stop him because, listen to this, the next day on October 7th, just one day before the stabbing, court records say that the professor forwarded the teaching assistant's concerned email to the assistant dean and basically he asked for instructions on how to handle the situation. When the email went up the chain of command and finally made its way to the response team, the response team reached out to Nicole Green. I mentioned her earlier because she was Thompson's former psychiatrist. And basically, they reached out to her saying that Thompson, quote, may need urgent outreach, end quote. That afternoon on October 7th, Thompson skipped his scheduled session. And the next day, October 8th of 2009, is when he stabbed Catherine Rawson. After the incident, Thompson was charged with one count of attempted murder, but in 2010, a judge found him not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was committed to a psychiatric hospital. However, Catherine's legal team told the LA Times that Thompson has since been deported back to Belize. Catherine, however, wanted someone to be held accountable, and that was not necessarily Thompson himself. It was actually the whole university. Well, basically the Board of Regents that ultimately governs UCLA. But Catherine embarked on a nearly 10-year lawsuit that ended up going all the way to the California Supreme Court. And I can say that I do not blame her. UCLA knew about this guy the whole time and were passively handling the situation instead of actively working to keep other students safe. Catherine initially filed a negligence lawsuit in 2010 alleging, quote, university personnel failed to take reasonable measures to protect her from the perpetrator's foreseeable violent conduct, end quote. However, in 2015, the Second District Court of Appeals dismissed Catherine's lawsuit, basically saying that while colleges and universities should have procedures in place to try to protect students, which UCLA did, they are ultimately not responsible or not liable for other people's actions, particularly those who are mentally ill, whether the actions are foreseeable or not. However, in January of 2016, the California Supreme Court agreed to review Rawson's case, and in a unanimous decision in March 2018, the Supreme Court overturned the lower court's ruling. This meant that Rawson could proceed with her negligence lawsuit against UCLA. In making the decision, the Supreme Court actually referred to the Virginia Tech shootings. According to the LA Times, the California Supreme Court said public colleges and universities in the state, quote, have a special relationship with their students and a duty to protect them from foreseeable violence, end quote. Okay, real quick, shameless plug for a previous episode of Campus Crime Chronicles. I actually covered the Virginia Tech shootings a couple of episodes ago, so if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to it after this. Okay, but Continuing with this story, Justice Carol A. Corrigan wrote for the court, quote, students are comparatively vulnerable and dependent on their colleges for a safe environment. Although a criminal act is always shocking to some degree, it is not completely unpredictable if a defendant is aware of the risk, end quote. In this case, UCLA was 
the defendant and they were aware of the risk. The Supreme Court also noted how UCLA markets itself as one of the safest campuses in the country. Catherine, who still has physical and emotional scars from the attack, wrote in response to the ruling, quote, no student should have to fear entering a chemistry lab or a lecture hall or a college library in the pursuit of knowledge, end quote. As of December 4th, 2018, no other information has been released in the media about Catherine's actual lawsuit. But according to an article in the Daily Bruin, remember, that's the campus newspaper at UCLA, a pre-trial conference was scheduled to take place on May 19, 2019. Also, in 2018, one of Catherine's attorneys, Alan Charles Delario, told the LA Times that he predicted Catherine would prevail in her lawsuit because UCLA had a violence prevention strategy, but UCLA, quote, didn't do it properly, end quote. Okay, so that brings us to the end of Chronicle 7. But as a professor, of course I have to say something. Offer some advice, maybe, to all college and university administration out there. Yes, it is great to have a response team in place, just like UCLA did or does. But we have to do more than just monitor these students and strongly encourage them to seek treatment or help. I don't necessarily know what is legal or the appropriate action to take. I mean, that's literally why all colleges and universities have an attorney on hand. But it's got to be something more than simply urging or recommending services. Perhaps, in this case, UCLA could have put a flag or a hold on his account and not allowed Thompson to continue attending classes until he went to a certain number of appointments or until he voluntarily checked himself into, you know, an inpatient treatment facility. I'm not sure what, but that's definitely what the response teams are for. So, I say let's put our heads together and figure out appropriate sanctions that are legally acceptable, of course, but that actually proactively protect our students instead of reactively or passively responding to escalating situations. But that's just my two cents. I mean, what do I know? I'm just a professor who literally works all around different types of students each and every day. Okay, well, that's officially, officially the end of the episode. As a reminder, it would really help me out if you'd subscribe to Campus Crime Chronicles, if you haven't already, of course, or even just tell all your friends about me and have them like and subscribe and review me on Apple Podcasts too. I know every podcast you listen to asks you to do this, but it's literally one of the only ways to really get the word out. So, again, thanks for listening. Bye, y'all. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle. <laughs>